Hey everybody, Dan Dan here, and today we are diving into a big book study. Today we will be doing the very beginning of the family afterward. That's page 122 in your fantastic big blue book. The family afterward brings us to a really interesting idea, and it segues right off the end of the previous chapter. The idea here is what am I packing into the family versus what am I getting out? And you'll find that that simple concept that I get resentments because I'm either not getting what I want or I'm afraid of losing something that I already have plays throughout this. It's going to give us dozens of scenarios and circumstances that we may encounter in the family. And it talks about bounces around about what to do about those things. Each one of them sort of represent their own set of problems, but the solution will remain the same. For us, this chapter of the family afterward is written for us and the family afterward. So there's a group of ideas in here that will be strictly for the family themselves, our families, our wives and our kids, and how they can interact with us and be helpful to us. And if you only focus on that, this chapter is going to seem really favorable to the alcoholic. Like, I'm a fragile little piece of China and I shouldn't be touched or disturbed, you know. But then there's this other part of the family afterward, which talks about my obligations to make things right. And those things I can easily skip over. So for the sake of our focus today, what we're really going to look at is how the family reacts to our newfound way of life and what types of imbalances in the family come along. The main thing is this, that there are commitments that we have made to our family for years that we are unable to keep up. And this chapter is written as if I'm just now getting into sobriety. So for those of us that have been around forever and we got a couple of days under our belt, this chapter may seem far away. I caution you. I caution you on that. Because these things are always working themselves out. It's not all about me and my view of the family. It has a lot to do with the family's view of me and what their needs are, what commitments I've made to them, and how well I'm meeting those commitments. All right, so page 122. Here we go. Our women folk, oh, by the way, you know, Bill writes this stuff with women in a way that really made good sense back in 1939. It doesn't make sense today. Please don't let that bother you at all. It doesn't matter because this could just as well be our man folk and our kid folk and our grandpa and grandma folk and our cousin folk and our coworker folk. <laughs> could be any of that. The family afterward in some ways applies to business as well, uh, especially if you have a family owned and operated business, right? So here we go. Our women folk have suggested certain attitudes a wife may take with the husband who is recovering. So these are angles of approach. Perhaps they created the impression that he is to be wrapped in cotton wool and placed on a pedestal. Oh, great alcoholic in recovery thou art. Successful readjustment means just the opposite. Now, what's funny about that is we pick up a white chip or whatever color chip it, I was at a place that they gave out marbles, which I thought was hilarious. So if you relapse, you've lost your marbles. <laughs> Anyhow, you, you pick up a chip, right? And, and somewhere around 30 days, you really want to pat on the back from your family, right? And at 90 days, you don't even, don't even understand why they're still mad at you. I mean, how could they? You've proven yourself true, right? You're cured almost. At six months, you're a genius. You really think you're cured. And 
they're still holding this stuff over our head, right? This is going to go over all that. Our women folk have suggested certain attitudes a wife may take with the husband who is recovering. Let's hope they do. Next paragraph. All members of the family should meet upon the common ground. Here's the beginning. The common ground of tolerance, understanding, and love. So if you present that to them while you're angry at them, that's probably not going to work. This involves a process of deflation, also known as humility. The alcoholic, his wife, his children, his in-laws, each one is likely to have fixed ideas about the family's attitude towards himself or herself. Each is interested in having his or her wishes respected. Keyword, respected. We find the more one member of the family demands that the others concede to him, the more resentful they become. This makes for discord and unhappiness. The more I focus on how people aren't doing what I want them to do, the more restless, irritable, and discontent I will become. And why? Is it not because each wants to play the lead? Hmm. Is not each trying to arrange the family show to his liking, much like our actor and how it works? Is he not unconsciously trying to see what he can take from the family life rather than give? So there we are. There's our premise. That's how we're walking into the family afterward today. Are we unconsciously trying to see what we can take from the family life rather than give to them? All right, here we go. Cessation of drinking is but the first step away from a highly strained, abnormal condition called alcoholism. A doctor said to us, years of living with an alcoholic is almost sure to make any wife or child neurotic. The entire family is, to some extent, ill. Let families realize as they start their journey that all will not be fair weather. Each in his turn may be foot sore and may straggle meaning they may get tired of doing this and may lag behind spiritually is how I take that. There will be alluring shortcuts and bypass down which they may wander and lose their way. Suppose we tell you some of the obstacles a family will meet. Suppose we suggest how they may be avoided, even converted to good use for others. The family of an alcoholic longs for the return of happiness and security. They remember when father was romantic, thoughtful, and successful. Today's life is measured against that of other years, and when it falls short, the family may be unhappy. Family confidence in dad is rising high. The good old days will soon be back, they think. Sometimes they demand that dad bring them back instantly. God, they believe, almost owes this recompense on a long overdue account. But the head of the house has spent years in pulling down the structures of business, romance, friendship, health. These things are now ruined or damaged. It will take time to clear away the wreck. Though the old buildings will eventually be replaced by finer ones, the new structures will take years to complete. So patience, kindliness, tolerance, right? That's the deal. It's so important for us to bring that to our families. Sometimes we get in. My understanding is there's much more divorce after sobriety between husbands and wives than before sobriety. They get unevenly yoked, so to speak. They don't travel that spiritual path together. And eventually us alcoholics, we think, you know, heck, I'm going to go off with so-and-so at whatever group because they, they got it together. I'm tired of dealing with these sick people, right? I'm going to go, she's got four years or he's got five years sober. I'm going to go hang out with them. And our minds wander away from the mission that's put forth in this chapter which is to amend or repair 
the relationship with the family, and it takes years. Now and then, the family will be plagued by specters from the past, for the drinking career of almost every alcoholic has been marked by escapades. Funny, humiliating, shameful, or tragic. The first impulse will be to bury these skeletons in a dark closet and padlock the door. The family may be possessed by the idea that future happiness can be based only upon forgetfulness of the past. You'll hear this from the religious end of things. That we just need to forget it, never deal with it. Put it in a box. That God forgets. Well, let me just point out something about the concept of forgetting. It doesn't mean that you can't remember. It just means that it's not in the front of your mind. You ever forgot where your keys were at? And then something happens and you remember where they're at. You ever forgot the line in a song or the line in a book or in a movie? And then something happens and you're able to remember it. It comes right to the front and center of your mind. You ever had a bad set of circumstances and they could have happened a really long time ago. Something like you see a bad car accident and then somebody mentions them seeing a car, bad car accident and boom, it's right there in the front of your mind. Forgetfulness doesn't work. Doesn't work. All right. The family may be possessed by the idea that future happiness can be based only upon forgetfulness of the past. So we go on from there. We think that such a view is self-centered and in direct conflict with the new way of living. We're going to tackle that past. Henry Ford once made a wise remark to the effect that experience is the thing of supreme value in life. That is true only if one is willing to turn the past to good account. So this is what we're going to do. We're going to go through this journey with our family in order to turn our alcoholic life into a better life and the journey of creating that better life into helping others. That's how we turn the past to good account. We grow by our willingness to face and rectify errors and convert them into assets. Let's go over that one again. We grow, you grow, I grow. My wife grows, my kids grow, my in-laws grow, the people around me grow. Everyone that touches the alcoholic has an opportunity to grow by the ability or their willingness to face and rectify, to make amends, to deal with who they are, to deal with their character defects, and to make amends, to rectify errors and convert them into assets. God does the conversion in my experience. That happens automatically. They become your assets. The story of your fifth step becomes the greatest part of your public disclosure of your alcoholic life. The alcoholic's past thus becomes the principal asset of the family, and frequently it is almost the only one. Wow. This painful past may be of infinite value to other families still struggling with their problems. So we bring this message out. That's the purpose of this journey. The purpose of this journey is to involve an attitude of spiritual principles so that God renders the result out of our relationships that we can confidently carry from the standpoint of experience to other families still struggling with their problems. We think each family which has been relieved owes what? Owes. Each family which has been relieved owes something to those who have not. And when the occasion requires, each member of it should be only too willing to bring former mistakes, no matter how grievous, out of their hiding places. Hmm. Showing others who suffer how we were given help is the very thing 
which makes life seem so worthwhile to us now. Powerful and factual. And I think there's thousands of us in AA that would say that right there is the truth. Here's what he wants us to do. Think of that. Cling, grab onto, don't let go, squeeze, hug, embrace, cling to the thought that in God's hands, the dark past is the greatest possession you have. The key to life and happiness for, for you? No, for others. With it, you can avert death and misery for them. That's a powerful statement. That is the reason for the journey with the family. That is why when your mind gets tempted to leave the family and not do this work, you fail and you lose out. It is possible to dig up past misdeeds so they become a blight, a veritable plague. For example, we know of situations in which the alcoholic or his wife have had love affairs. In the first flush of spiritual experience, they forgave each other and drew closer together. The miracle of reconciliation was at hand. Then, under one provocation or another, the aggrieved one would unearth the old affair and angrily cast its ashes about. A few of us have had these growing pains, and they have hurt a great deal. Husbands and wives had sometimes been obliged to separate for a time until new perspective, new victory over hurt pride could be re-won. So even if this happens, it can be fixed, but it's going to take some work. In most cases, the alcoholic survived this ordeal without relapse, but not always, because we'll drink at them, right? Well, I'll show you why bother with sobriety if I can't have my wife or husband. Why bother with this stuff if it's going to end up like this? I don't want to feel this way. Alcohol kept me from feeling this way. It doesn't have to go like that, and those thoughts will pass. That's when you call your sponsor. That's when you get to a meeting. It's when you dive deeper into working with others. So we think that unless some good and useful purpose is to be served, past occurrences should not be discussed. There's like some guidance for some of us on our ninth step. We families of Alcoholics Anonymous keep few skeletons in the closet. Everyone knows about the other's alcoholic troubles. <laughs> Let me what say. We families of Alcoholics Anonymous keep few skeletons in the closet. Is he saying that we gossip? Is that what we're getting at here? Everyone knows about the other's alcoholic troubles. Hmm. This is a condition which, in ordinary life, would produce untold grief. I think we're talking about gossip. He's going to tell us. There might be scandalous gossip, laughter at the expense of other people, and a tendency to take advantage of intimate information. Among us, these are rare occurrences. We do talk about each other a great deal, but we almost invariably temper such talk by a spirit of love and tolerance. Stay away from the resentment and hostility at all costs. Another principle we observe carefully is that we do not relate intimate experience of another person unless we are sure he would approve. We find it better, when possible, to stick to our own stories. A man may criticize to laugh at himself, and it will affect others favorably. But criticism or ridicule coming from another often produces the contrary effect. Members of a family should watch such matters carefully, for one careless, inconsiderate remark has been known to raise the very devil. We alcoholics are sensitive people. Oh man, that's true. It takes some of us a long time to outgrow that serious handicap. So our sensitivity is a serious handicap, and 
I'll tell you, in my life, almost nobody has my set of buttons installed any better or more easily accessible than my wife, right? Nobody, nobody. My mom, before she passed away, perhaps, but really nobody else. It's important that I desensitize those buttons and that I think of my job, my duty, what I owe, what I ought to do is to be in service to her. And as I practice that, the sensitivity has dropped way, way down. And my ability to express this incredible life of AA has increased. Here's an idea. As, as you listen to this chapter and two wives, two employers, as you think about the different promises and the steps, it seems like we love to say, hey, you know, I'm not going to ever get perfect. I'm never ever going to do this really great. And I hope you drop those ideas. I hope you just drop it. I know it's progress, not perfection. But here's, here's another idea on that, that we're just doing the best we can. We're going to do all that we are capable of doing, that we are going to give it all of ourselves. And if you're doing that, perhaps you have taken a mature attitude towards AA, and perhaps you're completely or doing something in a complete way most of the time. And I know that's not going to end up being perfect. But if we take page 417, that nothing happens in God's world by mistake, literally, then even our mistakes are an element of God's perfect plan. So even your mistakes, even when you think you're not perfect, you are still right where you're supposed to be in God's perfect plans. Anyway, many alcoholics are enthusiasts. They run to extremes. At the beginning of recovery, a man will take, as a rule, one of two directions. He may either plunge into frantic attempt to get on his feet in business, or he may be so enthralled by his new life that he talks or thinks of little else. In either case, certain family problems will arise. With these, we have had experience galore. So we're going to end right there for, for now. And think about all the depth and breadth of what that's talking about here. The family afterward is a kind of a new alcoholics addressed to somebody who's been blasted through the steps in a matter of weeks. Back in that time, it was highly encouraged that you complete the steps within like 30 days, as Bill W. said it once. If you don't, the people will begin to feel better and will lose their enthusiasm to do it. And I think we've all seen that. It's a vital, vital chapter. So as we think about what it says, I think the question for discussion of this chapter might be like this. And I suggest this discussion. How has thinking about what you're getting out of your family hurt you? And how has pouring into your family helped you? What have you done to pour into your family the spiritual principles that you're learning in the steps? And how have you seen God move the impossible? I can tell you for me, my wife and I are two people that no family therapist, none of our relatives, no friends of ours, would have recommended that we stayed together. There's no possibility of that. We had a drug and alcohol driven, violent relationship. And today we have a very beautiful, loving, supportive relationship. It is not perfect as it is said, but what it is is a mature relationship where spiritual principles are brought to the forefront many more times than not. And consequently, we have a great, a, a lot of humor about how we both react to one another. And what used to be points of contention or sensitive buttons on me now become things I just sort of laugh off 
and they just go away. I forget. I, they don't matter anymore. It, they, they're just not important. And the key thing is to not compete. So how are we moving and pouring into the stream of our family's lives? And here are some ways that we may do that. Are we telling them what our book says all the time? Are we browbeating them about spiritual principles? Do we run home to tell them what a great topic or some great share we heard in a meeting? Or are we asking them, what can we do for them today? Are we checking in to see how they're feeling? Are we allowing them to find their own path? Those are some questions to talk about. I really hope you guys have a great discussion.